Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. If your mindset really is in a bad place about money, I would do some meditations or hypnosis where you can start to change the way your subconscious thinks about money and do all of the exercises, whether they sound woo-woo or not. Because the thing is, the best way to change your money mindset is to actually see it happening. And so it's that fine balance of learning, implementing, just as an entrepreneur and just as a human generally, have fun with whatever you're doing. When you're from a place where there's not a huge financial abundance, your mindset around money isn't always great. You think you think the things like money is really hard to earn and money doesn't grow on trees and all that kind of thing. Well, when you start making money grow on trees, you're like, wait, am I being told the wrong thing? Because this is really easy. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. You are listening to a very special 12 Days of Christmas Work Hard, Play Hard episodes. These are episodes that I think had the most impact, so I wanted to share it with you as we are approaching the end of the year and getting focused on our goals and what we want to do in 2020. So I hope you enjoy this countdown. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You know what? I am looking forward to this for some time now. We've got a lot of mutual friends. I have heard so many amazing things about you. I cannot wait to dig into this. So thank you. Yes. No, we have so many mutual friends. It's crazy. It's such a small world. I feel like this is going to be an amazing episode. It's going to be great. Okay. So what I thought we would do is we would talk about first, since the podcast is work hard, play hard, we'll talk about work and then we'll move into play and then we'll wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Cool? Cool. All right. So I want to start at the beginning. Could you describe what it was like growing up in Newcastle in the north of England being one of eight Wow. Great question. The first time anyone's actually asked me that. And yeah, I can. So where I come from, 
it's a very different mindset. We didn't have a lot of money and um, it was a very turbulent childhood, actually. Um, there was a lot of turbulence between my parents. They divorced when I was three. And then growing up from that, my mum ended up um, with a boyfriend that wasn't so nice and he was really violent. And so I went through years of experiencing that trauma and it really knocked my confidence. And I was I really didn't believe in myself. I had such low self-esteem and I just started become, to become so determined to get out of there, not, not get out of Newcastle, but get out of that mindset and that thinking. And I had a really, really supportive family, even though my childhood was very turbulent. I had a very supportive family. They were always so supportive of my academia, which was my biggest passion. And my mum and my grandparents really, really wanted me to do well there. So I'm really lucky I got pushed to do that. But I just started to get this determination very early. And when you're from a place where you have to work for every single thing you had, I had two jobs um, all the way through college and university. And that just really instilled in me this amazing work ethic and determination to create a better life myself and to create a better mindset. And I really just became obsessed with psychology, kind of partly from the trauma experience. I think a way for me to let go and forgive what happened, I had to understand it properly. And that's where the psychology came in. And also as a young child, when you're experiencing a lot of that domestic violence, you learn how to manipulate and understand people in a good way so that things are better for you. Um, and so that kind of started there and, and really just never stopped. I became obsessed with that, uh, with, with that psychology element and understanding human behavior and what makes people do the things they do. And then from there, what makes them change that? What makes them change their behaviors, change their mindset? And then just entrepreneurship generally I've been obsessed with because I've always loved this idea of being able to create a life that I dreamed of from having ideas and making it happen myself. I love that. You know, sometimes we look back on these things in our lives and we're like, God, that sucked. That was so painful. I came from a very abusive environment myself. And but you know, as I'm getting older now, I'm 51 this year, I'm starting to realize that sometimes things in life happen exactly the way they're supposed to. And it really helps our, our own, our, our stories unfold as we become adults. Who knows why the things happen the way they do? Yeah. I completely agree. And for me, it's never formed part of my story as an entrepreneur. Like it's not something I've ever told online. I mean, I am now and I tell it in, in specific interviews, but it really has shaped who I am as a person and it allows me to have so much compassion for the people I work with. It allows me to have so much more understanding. But that being said, like you have to do the work to get there. You can't go through some really traumatic experience and not do the work to let it go and see the learning in it. Otherwise, it really will kind of bog you down, I think. Oh yeah, for sure. All right, so let's let's move along a little bit and let's talk about when you were six. This sounds like a therapy session, right? Let's talk about when you were six. Okay. Most six-year-old girls are playing with dolls, but you were entering the business world with a candy floss business. And for my American listeners, that means cotton candy. <laughs> Can you tell us the story of how that happens? Oh my God, yes. So... <laughs> 
I always, whenever I was playing, I wanted to be the boss. So if I was playing shops, I would be the owner of the store. And then I convinced my mom uh, or my grandparents, I can't remember, to buy me a candy floss machine and some sugar. So I got the machine, I got the sugar and I thought, hmm, there could be a business in here. So I set it up in my bedroom and I was spinning candy floss, taking it down and charging uh, kids on the street for the candy floss. And I was making good money, but my mom, I, I knew my mom wouldn't be supportive of this venture. So I hid it in my bedroom and I had the kids knocking on my door this one day in particular, just all wanting to come back. They'd all been running and asking their parents for more money. And I had like 20 pounds stashed away, which is a, which is a lot of money as a six-year-old. I thought I was rich. And my mum came in and found me sitting with this candy floss machine, sugar everywhere. And she was like, oh my God, what are you doing? And she made me take everyone's money back to everyone and apologize to them. I had to knock on their door and say, I'm sorry for charging you ridiculous amount of money for a bit of sugar. Here's your money back. <laughs> I mean, the profit margins were really healthy. Uh, uh, six-year-old profit margins. Love it. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's move along a little bit to 13 now. So you moved uh, from candy to the world of online business. What kind of businesses were you doing online at 13? So at 13, I was, uh, yeah, I was on the internet and I started originally building websites for people. I, like I noticed that people really wanted websites and had no idea how to create them. And whilst most teenagers were on MSN and all of those social media sites, I was just loving creating websites and I was designing logos and all this kind of thing. Um, for anyone on the internet, they had no idea I was 13. But then I noticed this trend on eBay stores. So a lot of eBay stores were opening up and selling a lot of products. And I thought, hmm, it might be interesting if instead of I opening an eBay store, I look at importing some products from China and sell them in bulk to the eBay stores. And so kind of helping that wholesale along. So what I would do is import products like face masks and all that kind of thing from China. Actually, it was sheet masks. So sheet masks are really, really popular now. They, I think they're originally Korean and women all over the place are using them. You'll find them at every single Sephora. But I was importing them when I was 13. So that was 13 years ago. And I would uh, basically direct message an eBay shop saying, hey, I have 100 sheet masks here. I can sell them to you at this price. Do you want them? And I would make them pay me privately. And I I don't even know how I got like an account online to receive money because I was so young, but they did. But then um, a year into it, eBay found out and I actually got a full ban from eBay and I've still not really been allowed back on. <laughs> and that was 13 years ago, but I was making a killing, but I couldn't even spend the money because I couldn't get it out because I didn't even have a bank account. So I was just using it to buy extra stock online. This is insane. Okay, so let's let's kind of just take a step back for a second. Did do you think that the drive that you had for success at this level in those two examples that we talked about at 6 and 13 was a way for you to see a path out of a home environment that you didn't love? No, I don't think so. At 13, I'd moved in with my grandparents and it was definitely less turbulent, even though I was kind of still dealing with all the uh, psychological part of it. But I didn't even see this as a pass out at the time, but it was very much an escape for me. I would get really lost in just creating things and business and all of that kind of thing. And I really threw myself into it. And whenever I threw myself into anything when I was younger, I was a full overachiever. And I think a lot of that comes from 
you really want to please your parents that they'll be happy with you and there'll be no fighting. And I would really push myself and into just overachieving with everything. And that probably stuck with me. So when I was online and doing all of this stuff, I would get so swept into it and, and addicted. My grandparents would come in and kind of say, okay, you have to turn the router off now and go to bed. And I would sneak out, turn it back on and I'd be up all hours just trying to create things. And it was just such an escape for me to kind of channel all of this creative energy that I had. Because at the time... I was going through a bit of a phase where I wasn't really enjoying school and I wasn't paying attention, which was really strange for me. And I was really resisting and, and being quite difficult to my teachers. Whereas this is the one area that I just was really able to channel my energy. And I think it was that. And then I did quickly realize that, oh, this comes with money and money can buy things and freedom. And I kept seeing LA on the TV and I thought, wow, if I just have enough money, I can go to LA. And it all kind of started with that. But in the beginning, it wasn't that kind of thinking. Got it. Mine was the exact opposite. I viewed entrepreneurship as a, as a as a vehicle to get out of where I was, but I see how you used it sort of in a similar way, but slightly differently. So later on, as you got a little bit older, you realized that the economics that you were be, that you were able to create would allow you to just do whatever you wanted to do. Exactly. And when you're from a place where there's not a huge financial abundance, your mindset around money isn't always great. You think you think the things like money is really hard to earn and money doesn't grow on trees and all that kind of thing. But when you start making money grow on trees, you're like, wait, am I being told the wrong thing? Because this is really easy. And then that's kind of how I started to change my mindset around money. I was thinking, okay, I don't have to be working tirelessly to make money, but I have to be solving problems and I have to be willing to go out there and, and put myself out there and like risk getting rejected because a lot of the stores would say, no, we don't want this. So that's kind of how it started. And then I, I really became obsessed with entrepreneurship. I have a letter from my head teacher when I was 15. I asked for a meeting with the head teacher and I went up and I said, look, we aren't being taught entrepreneurship. And I think it's really important. And I would love a, a class on it. And she was like, I really admire this, but I'm not sure we can do that. And one of the business teachers, I still remember a Mr. Siri, he came to me, said, right, I've heard you want an entrepreneurship class. I will run one for you after school, but there has to be people coming to it. I was like, done. I will sell it to everyone. We will be there. Um, and actually one of the girls that works uh, in my company right now, she was one of the girls that was part of this class. And we just got to explore entrepreneurship and it was amazing. And this really carried on for me when I went to university. I set up an entrepreneurship society, which has become one of the best in the UK now um, across all universities. This led me to then um, do my own research on young entrepreneurship. I ended up advising government, advising my university to help bring in programs to encourage entrepreneurship. Because one thing I started to realize um, as I was getting more into this was, yes, entrepreneurship is amazing and you can create so much. But if you don't know about it, you can't. And, at this, and also, while I was at university, I got offered a great graduate job and a great sign-on bonus and I was in debt. So I was in no kind of space to be turning down these sign-on bonuses. And I just thought, you know what, this is really unfair because there's a lot of people around me who are from families with a lot of wealth who can put some money into a business and give themselves six months of breathing room after university to go and try this business out. And I didn't have that. And it, and it was really infuriating for me. And I just thought it wasn't fair. So I started to kind of work with my university to encourage them to find ways to make it happen for more people like me. And this led me on to being one of the first ambassadors of a £112 million 
fund for young entrepreneurs to be able to start their own company. So it really just kind of grew from that. And it was a very economic thing for me in the beginning. Well, that led you, if I'm not mistaken, all the way to 10 Downing Street. Is that right? It did. Yeah. I got invited to speak with Lord Young and he is really passionate about getting more young people interested in entrepreneurship. And he invited me down and I had tea with him. So English. Yeah. I had tea with him um, and we spoke about that. And he was saying, what what makes people like you get into entrepreneurship and how can we as a, co- as a country be doing more of that? How many cups of tea a day do you have? <laughs> I'm on my second right now um, and it's 10 a.m. I mean, I guess like four or five. If it's a bad day, who knows? (laughs) You really are English. But you know what's interesting about your accent? Your accent almost sounds like it leans Irish to me. Am I ears wrong? (laughs) No, they're not. But I grew up, it's just 30 minutes from Scotland. So I'm what we call a Geordie. Yeah, I'm what we call a Geordie in the UK. It's a very strong Northern accent. Okay. Okay. I'm not familiar with the different uh, British accents, shall we say. Okay. So now let's move a little bit. And around 20 years old, you decided, you know what, I'm going to take three years and I'm going to travel all around the world. I want to ask you a couple of questions on that because we share the travel bug in common. Did you work while you were traveling those three years? I did, yes. Yeah. So uh, while I started my travel and I was volunteering, I worked a lot to save up to be able to donate a chunk of money to um, a charity that helps hill tribes in northern Thailand. The reason that this happened was funny. I went through a breakup and me and uh, my boyfriend at the time, we were supposed to be going to Camp America together to earn money and work over the summer. And we broke up and he was like, well, I'm still going to Camp America. And I was like, well, I'm not going to go to Camp America. Uh, but I need something else to do. And you know, when you're in that space of like, oh, I've got a broken heart, I need fixing, yep. I need to go and find myself. And I thought, okay, where can I where can I push myself out of my comfort zone? And it, I, I found this thing in university where you could pay to go and live with a hill tribe for a month in the jungle, completely rural Northern Thailand. And you would basically help them learn English. You would help them build houses, all of these different things. And I thought that's exactly what I'm going to do. And I went and did it. And that for me was the beginning of a big travel bug. And I absolutely loved it. It was the most awful and terrifying and amazing experience of my life. And I started traveling around Thailand after that. I came back to university and I worked like crazy to save up money to be able to go to LA after that. And I was just working as a waitress when I first got to LA, um, which is when I came up with my first idea for an online company. And I started to set that up. And then I went and lived in France for a little bit. Then I went back to LA. And at this time, I was just making money from my online company. So I was able to actually fund my travels without having to work. And that just took me all over the world. And it was the most amazing thing that I've done. What was the place you stayed the longest? LA. Uh, LA LA was the place I stayed the longest. And then I ended up going back home trying out New York. I had this calling to go to New York and I booked a flight within the week and went to New York. I'm very like spontaneous. If something feels yeah. right in my gut, I will listen to it. Um, and I went to New York and that was such an incredible learning experience for me and really got me clear on 
what I'm passionate about and what I want to be doing. So I flew back to England and I thought, okay, I want to be in Silicon Valley. This is the place for me. So I flew out there and that was a year and a half ago. I'm 26 now. That was a year and a half ago. And I met my husband. We got married within six months. He grew up 30 minutes away from me. He's the most amazing guy. I met him here um, and we've been living here for a year and a half, but we're planning to move back to LA next month. So it's kind of all gone full circle and it's all been very gut-led decisions. Amazing. Where in LA are you going to move uh, to? I'm going to be in Playa Vista. Okay. I'm going to be in Manhattan Beach. So uh, I'm moving uh, exactly one year from this week. I love that. Okay. We'll hang out. We're going to have tea. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. I'll make you the best tea you've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be a different question that you get asked a lot about your travels. And that is what country did you like the least? The country that I liked the least was China. Um, I was only in China for a day though. I really didn't give it enough time, but it was a very big culture shock for me and I really didn't like it. That being said, I am going back next month uh, on my way to Bali. I decided I'm going to spend two days in uh, Shanghai with one of my good friends who's moved there and I'm going to give it another try because I don't like having kind of bad taste in my mouth about any kind of country or anything like that. And I think it's such an amazing country and culture and I need to give it more time to kind of get rid of that judgment that I had. Everywhere else I've liked for a reason. I mean, Northern Thailand was tough, but Thailand is a beautiful country and the food makes up for any of the experiences in the jungle and such a a beautiful culture. But yeah, I think it was China and I really need to change my perceptions around that. Wow. Amazing. You know, you got to come with us. Uh, Every year we go to Greece and uh, we just got back. Uh, You know, Lori Harder, right? I do. Oh my God. I love her. Yeah. We did. um, We did a month uh, with Chris and Lori and do you know Lewis Howes School of Greatness? Yeah. And Lewis, he came with us too. And we had a, we had a crew of about 15 of us and uh, we really lived it up there. So if you haven't done Mykonos, Greece, you got to do that if you're into travel. Yes. Greece is beautiful. Let's talk a little bit about your company. Um, that you started, uh, which is called Oh My Glow. What is it and why did you create it? So my company, Oh My Glow, I actually don't run it anymore, um, but I did start it four years ago while I was traveling. Um, And the reason that I created it was because I kind of had this commitment to myself. Okay, when you get a light bulb idea that has some legs, you have to go and do it. Because at the time I was kind of in and out of things and just kind of working within entrepreneurship generally in the space, but I didn't have that actual business experience. And when I was in LA working as a waitress, I started to notice all of these supplements that were available that weren't available in the UK. Like Maca didn't even exist there. It wasn't a thing. So I came back to the UK and decided I was going to bring these superfood supplements to the UK. And I actually put together my own blend. Um, It took me a year from kind of idea to having a product ready, just going between different labs and finding a factory and all that kind of thing. And I launched it, which really showed me the power of social media because within that year of development, I was working on social media, um, trying to build up an Instagram following and also earning some money on the side, building up other people's Instagram followings. And when I actually launched All My Glow, I made, I was making sales from over 60 countries within just a few weeks. And I actually got contacted by Boots, which is the UK equivalent of Walgreens. And they see my product on Instagram and want to stock me in nearly every single store in the UK. So that was a huge leap for us. And it all kind of came from Instagram. And I stepped back from All My Glow about a year and a half ago And that was a difficult decision for me because you'll know when you're in business, you kind of see it as your baby. But for me, it was something that I was really passionate about at the time and it served its purpose. 
it started to become something I didn't love doing anymore. I was I was really finding that I was enjoying experimenting more with Boss Babe. Um, and, and I had this idea that Boss Babe could become something more than just um, an account with lots of quotes on. I really had this feeling it could be an amazing company, which is when I did that. But Oh My Glow taught me so much about business and creating products and cash flow and all that kind of thing. Well, how did Instagram impact that business? So we basically were just building up a following. Um, while we had no product, we were building up an account. It was like a, a health and wellness account. And it meant that when we launched, we had like, at the time, maybe 30,000 followers, which is a lot um, a few years ago. And then when we launched, it meant that we had all of these people to sell the product to. And from there, we started building a mailing list. And it was just this kind of free advertising for us. And at the time, there was kind of no limits on you could go through and like hundreds and hundreds of pictures without getting blocked blocked or any of that kind of thing. There was kind of no limit on what you could do with Instagram. So we really used that to our advantage. And then it really allowed us to showcase the product in such an amazing way, just taking pictures on our iPhone, uploading it to Instagram and instantly connecting with people. And that just was so new. And taking advantage of that early had been amazing. If you can build up a really loyal community before you launch and they're already warm to your product, then it's going to be amazing. What would you advise people at this stage of the game who are on Instagram that you would recommend that they do because you've really figured out how to leverage that platform? Whenever I recommend anyone kind of starting out or with a smaller account on Instagram right now, I say they have to do things differently. It's not just enough to upload some cool quotes or nice pictures because there are tons of those accounts. Years ago, there wasn't. It was quite new, but we have there are like, what, 400 million users on stories alone now. It's crazy. 2 billion users or something like that. It's crazy. And you need to stand out in that noise. You need to be using the content in a way that feels very new and interesting. And I just sent out an email on my list this morning to really encourage people to talk more about the things they're actually deeply passionate about than things they just think are going to get them likes and engagement because that energy comes across and make sure you're doing stories. You're using all the new features like Instagram TV because you'll get rewarded for doing it. Make sure you're uh, actually researching viral posts and seeing and understanding why they're going viral in your space. What is it about this image that is getting people interested? Because it's not just enough to create nice pictures. People are bored of nice pictures. There needs to be some substance and authenticity and depth to your posts. And then you can use the hashtags. You can do all of the growth hacky type things. But if your actual fundamental content isn't great and isn't unique, you're going to really struggle to grow. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I, I'm just actually listening to you. I had a little uh, full circle moment here. One of your Insta stories inspired me from Greece to do an Insta story about your story. <laughs> I, don't know oh, if you I remember love that. It. But I tagged, I tagged Janet. I'm not sure if you saw it. But you've got some really, really, really great stuff there. Okay, so I want to go back a little bit to Oh My Glow. So you started selling, um, I guess it was about five years ago. And within four weeks, you were shipping to 36 countries and nationwide to a couple of hundred stores. Was there a particular inflection point that you can point to that was responsible for that hockey stick growth? Um, yeah, I think it was the move into retail for us. Um, that kind of huge order coming in was a big catalyst for growth. And I think it also really gave us 
some credibility in the industry. People were seeing it on shelves and we were announcing the partnership with that big brand. And I think with any kind of product-based business, if you're really trying to gain credibility, to get into a really good store with a good reputation is going to help you with that growth. Unless you are purely online, then I think it's mainly ads and testimonials based, getting people actual results and getting them to share that. But for us, it was it was the retail. You know, one of the things that I've noticed with you is that you're willing to get your hands dirty. You'll visit the factories, you'll test things in your kitchen. Where do you think entrepreneurs fall short in making their dreams a reality? Probably very similar to what you've just said, actually. I think that just sparked for me the fact that people... Uh, entrepreneurs really need to be willing to do all the jobs, even the things that they don't like. They can't just outsource it from the beginning. I think that causes a lot of issues because when you outsource something that is really core to your product and you don't understand it and you're not listening to your market, you're not learning, that's going to have such detrimental effects. And even now with Boss Babe, we are constantly listening and do so much of the product work ourselves. We don't even outsource it to our intimate team um, until me and my co-founder are completely happy with how everything is and we understand it. And then we'll outsource and we keep the closest eye on it until we've established product market fit. And then we'll start to outsource. And then I think another, another big key here to success as an entrepreneur is then being willing to relinquish that control and outsource. A lot of us are like, no, it's better if I do it myself. I'm going to keep doing all of this. But if your zone of genius is not packing orders every day and it's more coming up with uh, creative ideas or a vision for a company, which it kind of should be as an entrepreneur, and you're not willing to delegate, then you're really going to struggle to actually work on the business and you're just going to be another employee of your business. And eventually that will probably lead you to uh, failure. Oh yeah, you'll get crushed. You have to stay in your zone, that's for sure. Okay, so you hit a point you mentioned earlier with Oh My Glow, where it was running well, you had an operational machine, but the passion just wasn't there. And then Boss Babe entered your life. Could you tell me the story? Uh, first of all, what is Boss Babe? And second of all, how did it enter your life? So yeah, Boss Babe is a company that really aims to empower um, and support ambitious women and female entrepreneurs. So we don't think all ambitious women are female entrepreneurs, but we kind of try and serve them both. So the reason that I came across Boss Babe in the beginning, it was an Instagram account started by a good friend of mine. And there was some traction being gained on there. And I came on board and we started to monetize. We started to do like ads. And at the time, there was some kind of membership model already running within the business. But it wasn't a big profitable company. It was just bringing in money and growing. So uh, when I started kind of taking over and growing, I really started to grow the the social audience without even thinking about what that looks like profit-wise. For me, I just become so passionate about the company. I was already starting something, my own called The Confidential on the side, which was pretty much exactly the same as Boss Babe. But without the... I hadn't even started it. I just had the idea. And I started to put all of my ideas from The Confidential into Boss Babe. And I just became so passionate about it. And at the time, uh, my friend who'd started that was becoming less and less passionate about it. And we decided, you know what? I'm just going to take this on. And I ended up finding a co-founder who was so passionate about it, my amazing friend, Danielle. And we both decided just to take this on completely and make this into a company, not just a community that is empowering women, but an actual company and start to really scale the impact we were having and start to make money from it. 
So you have so many entrepreneurial uh, pursuits that are happening. And I'm sure now with Boss Babe, that's exploding. I'm sure you have a million ideas of what you want to do and where you want to go, as most entrepreneurs do. Can you explain your process of breaking down your goals into maybe quarters and how you stay focused on what's in front of you? And really what I'm after is how do you not get distracted by the next shiny thing as an entrepreneur? Oh, it's so hard to avoid shiny object syndrome. So the first thing that we did was create a Slack channel called Ideas. And whenever we have an idea, we just put the idea in there and getting it out of your head and into somewhere where you feel like, okay, it's not going to go anywhere. It's there. Uh, That was a really, really big thing for us. So we started doing that. And then basically um, at the beginning of the year and then every half, we will revisit our entire strategy. And that starts with looking at our, our core mission and values. And we say, okay, is it still the same? Are we still working towards this mission? And if the answer is yes, what what do we want to do? Where's all these ideas that we've had? What are they going to do? And we'd list out all of the ideas and then we'd start to break them down and really find things that we actually think has legs because you have so many ideas as an entrepreneur. We start to break that down and we set ourselves those goals for uh, H2. So um, right now we're kind of in that H2 mode and we've got all of these huge goals. Then we break it down again into quarters and we say, okay, I know I can achieve these goals in this quarter. That's what I'm going to focus on. And we let a little bit of uh, flexibility come up there because as you are working, you start to get more and more ideas. And if something really fits with the mission and we think it's possible to be achieving this quarter, we will work on it and we'll add that to the goals. If not, we then put it in Q4 or we'll save it for like next year which is something we've been really um, quite good about. That art of being patient, I think, is important and realizing it's not a huge race. Yes, some things have more urgency than others, but if you have a really, really good idea, you can save it for a couple of months and it'll be totally fine. So being okay with that, I think, is important. But I'm really, really focused on my goals and I love to have my goals up on my wall in my office so I'm seeing them every single day and that I'm not just drifting off. And when I'm having an idea, I'm like, how is that contributing to the goals that we have as a company? is this just a good idea or is this an idea that's actually going to push us forward and, and push us closer to those goals? And that's kind of how I assess it. But seeing those goals every single day, so you are completely focused and you're not getting caught up just answering everyone's emails and on social and you're actually working towards making shit happen, I think it's really important. And then every single week when I, I, I plan my entire week in Evernote on a Sunday. So every single day, Monday to Friday, I know exactly what I've got on and I know I'm, what I'm working towards. And at the top of that Evernote, I'll have the monthly goals. So I know that every week I have to be making progress towards those goals. And there's normally like eight of them. So I need to be doing like two of these goals a week, which means not working on the inbox. It means not work, not like getting caught in the details and really focusing. But goal setting and those exercises have been really, really core to our success. In Evernote, is it the weekly goal that you have there or is it the quarterly goal? quarterly. And then I normally just kind of separate the quarterly goals into what can I achieve this month? Like what can I focus on this month? So as an example, recording podcast episodes and launching the podcast was a quarterly goal for us. But I realized that's completely possible to get done this month. So that's a quarterly goal I'd bring over and put into the month. So say I had 10 quarterly goals, I might put five um, in this month and five next month, which is kind of a stretch. And I call them like stretch goals. And if I get all of these things done in the next few months, it gives me another month to really, really focus on getting ahead in uh, Q4 and 
pushing my goals even bigger and working on that. So I always try and even when I've got those goals set in, in quarters, I still try and push bigger than them. I love that. Well, let me help you with the podcasting stuff too, because I've got it down to a science and I've got it all outsourced. So I can literally teach you how to push a button and you'll record it and it will magically appear in iTunes with show notes and edited and music and it'll be amazing. I'm going to take you up on that. Just like when we were getting on this call, I was like, oh my God, this technology is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I will totally, totally help you with that. That is amazing. Thank you. You're welcome. I want to talk about Rio, not the uh, not the city, but uh, the. I, I think it's an app. Is that it's right? An app. Yes. That's right. Tell me about it. What is it? So Rio is a video discovery platform. So a chance to discover videos rather than having to go out there and search for them and look for them. So I was involved in Rio when I came back to uh, the UK and I said, I want to go and live in Silicon Valley. Rio was part of my journey. So obviously as a UK citizen, I needed a visa to come over. So I started to look at different opportunities that could get me a visa, which is when I stumbled across Rio and I started chatting to the team and I accepted a position with them as kind of head of their marketing within a week of chatting to them because the team were the most intelligent team I have just ever came across. The founder, uh, Alan, who is one of my really good friends now, he actually invented apps. So the apps you have on the phone, you, he invented apps. He is the most incredibly wow. intelligent guy and, and his co-founder and the team was just incredible. And I saw this as not only being able to work on something interesting, but I had never worked in a technology company or, or, an, or on an app, which is definitely something that I want to be doing and creating within my own company. I had never worked on anything like that before. And I wanted that experience firsthand from a company that had raised money um, and was really going through that process. And I was one of the only kind of non-technical people on the team. And it was an amazing learning experience for me. And I was the only female on the team as well. And they were all so incredibly supportive of Boss Babe. They knew that I was trying really hard to figure out what I wanted Boss Babe to be. I had no idea, but I was trying to figure that out. They were really supportive of that and still letting me just do as much Boss Babe as I wanted to while I was there. And they also taught me a lot about... Because I'd never worked for anyone before, really, before that. And they taught me a lot about what it's like to be a woman in a male-only tech-dominated kind of space and really pushed me to um, speak up a lot more and to develop myself personally and those skills. It was just the most incredible. I think I was there six months. It was just the most incredible six months. I learned so much. You know, I live on the same block here in Buckhead, Atlanta as uh, Sarah Blakely. I live on the same block as Sarah Blakely's office. Oh my God. And I, I know that she's a fan. So uh, we see her quite a bit walking up and down the streets. And you you remind me so much of her. There's so many similarities. So I, I see why you like her. That is the biggest compliment I have ever received. I am the biggest fan of Sarah Blakely. Well, I got to make that connection for you. I would die. I would die. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I want to get into outer space with you here just a little bit and talk about manifestation. How do you use manifestation to create what you want in your life? Oh, I love this question. Manifestation is everything. I really have manifested 
everything that I have. So the way that I use it is I visualize a lot. So um, I get really, really, really clear on my visions, like very, very specific. And not only do I kind of see them and spend time doing all those visualization meditations and kind of, I put myself in the situation where I'm feeling the actual emotions that I would be feeling when I have achieved the things I'm visioning. And this really tricks your mind into thinking you already have it. It's done. Um, so I, I do that process a lot and get myself in that emotional state. And then when I'm setting goals, I am as specific as can be. And I write down every single one of my goals. I have to have them written down. And normally I will kind of get myself into a really calm, relaxed state and I will just get really creative. I'm a really creative person. And I think a lot of my good energy comes from that. So I'll kind of get my pens and paper out and I will draw all of my goals and make it all pretty and different colors and all that kind of thing. And then I have it up. So I'm seeing it all the time. And then I'm working on visualizing that and working towards it. And I've manifested the craziest shit. Yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing at how that works. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the reticular activating part of your brain that just makes you see it in the same way that, you know, you buy a car and you see it everywhere and it's just creating that awareness, but who gives a shit? It works. I know. Um, who so, cares? I, who cares? I love, I love how you added the emotional component to it though, which is you feel the feelings, you feel the emotions that you would have if you actually had it. So if you want to have a billion dollar company, well, let me rephrase that. Since you're going to have a billion dollar company <laughs> with Boss Babe, how do you feel a billion dollar company when you don't have it yet? So when I'm visualizing, so say I was visualizing for the time we become a billion dollar company, what I visualize is like the day we get the news that our valuation is a billion dollars and how I'm celebrating with my team. So I think about the news comes in and I gather my team around and we are talking about it. We are celebrating. We are having champagne. There's cake. And we are just dancing around and I see my offices exactly the way they look. And they're quite similar to Sarah Blakely. So I'll have to let her know about that. But um, I visualize all of that and I see it happening. And through feeling, when you imagine yourself, oh my God, I'm jumping around, I'm chasing champagne, the energy comes out of you in your, in, in your mind. I mean, your brain must just be going beep, 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 like all of this stuff happening and you get so fired up. And I think that's the best way to create that emotion. Just think about exactly what you will do when you've reached that goal. Where will you be? How will you be feeling? How did the news come to you? How will you tell people about it? I love that. You know, I tell you, you would probably want to move into where I live in a high rise in the city. And from my window, I can look into Sarah's window of her main office. And it is spectacular, giant floor to ceiling windows, chandelier, like the most beautiful decorations. And she's just, you know, she just has these 20 something beautiful women that are coming in and out all day long with, you know, panels and swatches and, you know, her, um, I want to do this. I want to do that. So I'm just putting that bug in your head. So maybe, oh, maybe that'll help. Maybe that that'll help. help you. Maybe I need to move <laughs> and just be in a place where I can see into Sarah's office. Is that no, creepy? that's the only, no, that's the only, it, no, it's not creepy, but it's the only good thing about Atlanta. I mean, you know, we got good restaurants, but that's why I'm moving to LA. Cause I, I need, uh, I need 70 degrees, no humidity, blue skies, no bugs, you know, that kind mm. of stuff. You've got a point. Let's keep the apartment in Atlanta and we'll just like apartment swap. Yeah. We'll go back and forth. Good. 
What advice would you give people on how to improve their money mindset like we talked about earlier? I think probably the beginning of it comes from just read some books that really kind of explain to you the fundamentals of money mindset and uh, that money money is an energy and all the things that you can create. There's some really good ones. Think and Grow Rich. Uh, you are a badass at making money. There's some really great ones there. And then I think if your mindset really is in a bad place about money, I would do some meditations um, or hypnosis where you can start to change the way your subconscious thinks about money and do all of the exercises, whether they sound woo-woo or not, do all the exercise in the book. Because the thing is, the best way to change your money mindset is to actually see it happening. You can do all the best things in the world, all the best theory, but if it doesn't actually make a change for you, you're going to be thinking, this is bullshit, this isn't working. Whereas if you're actually putting things into practice and you are committing to testing this out and making sure that what you're learning is actually true and by improving your money mindset, you'll actually have more money. If you then see the money coming in, there's no going back after that. Totally agree with you. I want you to tell me about the time that you pretended to be a Bloomberg reporter so you can get access to Richard Branson. (laughs) Oh God, this just sums me up in a nutshell, this story. This is me. So basically I was at university and I just seen this flash on on Facebook that Richard Branson was opening a bank in the city center. And I was like, whoa, he is the ultimate entrepreneur. I need to go and speak to him and just tell him that I like want to be an entrepreneur and just make that connection. So I literally packed up my stuff. I had all these files and books and I ran down to the bank. My university was really close to it, maybe just about 10 minutes away. I ran there and I got outside and I saw that it wasn't so easy just to run in and chat to him. There was all of these like security and you could only get in if someone like allowed you in. So I was standing there listening and people were saying, oh, I'm with the press, all that kind of thing. And I thought, okay, bingo. So I put my school books in my bag and I walked through and I'm hi, I'm Natalie Diver. I'm here with Bloomberg. So that was my maiden name. I'm here with Bloomberg. Oh, okay. I was, I was, I was going to say, did you make that one up too? Okay. <laughs> no, that was actually that your maiden was, name. Yeah. That was my it's name the, the time. It, it's the only real part of the story, right? Yeah. So it's like, hi, I'm Natalie Diver. I'm here with Bloomberg. They were like, okay, they didn't ask any questions. They didn't, there was no press badges or nothing. We're like, okay. So I wandered in and then there it was. There was Branson in all his glory standing there. So I went and got myself a glass of champagne. So I start mooching up to him. And then I seen there was a window, there was a gap there. And I walked up to him. And I was like, hi, Richard, my name's Natalie. I'm a huge fan of your work. I'm very interested in entrepreneurship. I would actually really like to do some kind of work with your company. If you're open to that, is there anyone you can intro me to? And I just went in really, really quickly with this 20 second pitch. And he was like, hey, Natalie, he didn't even think for a second to like ask, oh, how are you even here? He was like, yeah, that would be amazing. Let me um, let me get your details and we'll pass it on to someone that can send you more information. Um, and they did that. I actually then ended up a year later, met him again. And he ended up buying a product from me. He was just the nicest. And then he signed my book. And I told him, I was like, I sneaked in to see you a year ago. But that's just such an example of just seeing a window of opportunity and not giving a shit. Like the worst thing that can happen is someone's going to say, no, you're not with Bloomberg or whatever. Go away. But that just didn't happen. And And he's such a cool guy. He probably thought the story was great. Yeah, he's so nice. And I think he was just... He like was being talked to by so many different people. He was like, oh, this is really interesting. Just some young girl is trying to pitch me on something. So he was 
really great about it. And I only took up 20 seconds of his time. I was in and out. But the funny thing was, as I was coming out, there was actually an interview and they were like, okay, we're really wanting to know what effect that um, Richard Branson buying this bank and turning it into virgin money is going to have on the economy. And I was like, oh shit. (laughs) So I'm standing there. I I don't really know, but I think we're friends now. Yeah. I mean, I was just like, okay, so let's go. And I just started giving them stuff. I was on camera. I don't know if that ever made it to TV. Maybe it did. But I just started talking about how it'll benefit the the Newcastle economy. And off that, off I went back to university. <laughs> well, you know, there's a connection. I don't know if you if you remember this television show, but do you remember the television show where Sarah was on the show on Richard Branson's TV show? No. Oh, you got to look this up. I'll tell you, I'll tell you quick. So years ago when Trump was doing The Apprentice, Richard Branson in the first or second year decided that he wanted to go up against him and give, you know, throw his hat in the ring and do his own Apprentice show. And Sarah was just starting Spanx. And um, it was a very, very, it was almost an identical model where every week somebody got fired and, you know, the one who wins gets a, an apprenticeship with him and, and gets a million bucks. And the last episode, Sarah was one of the last two that were standing. And he went to something like Niagara Falls. I'm not sure if it was exactly Niagara Falls, but it was something like it. And he had a barrel. And he said, okay, I'm going to put you in the barrel and we're going to go down to the bottom. And, you know, it's your choice. You either say yes or no that you want to do this. And whoever, you know, whoever makes it to the bottom in the quickest amount of time wins. And Sarah says, I'm not going to do it. And the other guy said, I'm going to do it. And he said, Sarah, why are you not going to do it? She said, because it's, I think I'll die. And so he said, well, we don't even need to do this. You won because you would have died. And I only want to work with somebody who's willing to take risks, but take calculated risks, not be stupid. Mm. And that's how she won the show. Isn't that crazy? That's incredible. I had no idea. That's it. And it's so true, right? Yeah, well, YouTube that. It's so true. You can't be taking stupid risks. Yeah, for sure. All right. So I want to move a little bit um, into the play hard round and do a little check under the hood and talk about the play area of your life. You know, play does not have to be spraying champagne in Saint-Tropez, although it can be. (laughs) Sometimes it's even sexier to sit down and read a book that you've always wanted to read. So whatever you define play as is play. You've said that people can get stuck learning and not taking action. How do you think about the work hard versus play hard part of your life to begin with? That balance is so, so important. If you aren't kind of engaging in play and you want laughing and letting go of all of this stuff that's up in your head and just enjoying life, why would you have the motivation to go and work so hard if you can't enjoy anything? I think when you really let go and allow yourself to play and be creative and happy, you start to get more ideas and you start to kind of become an even better entrepreneur for it. But so often as entrepreneurs... We're like, oh, I haven't got time for that. I haven't got time to go and play. I need to do this. I need to do this. And there is such, uh, there is that real need to take action. You can learn everything there is to know about uh, funnels. But if you don't build a funnel and you don't take action on it, what use was ever learning anything about funnels? Just talking about it isn't going to do anything for you. And so it's that fine balance of learning, implementing, and then just as an entrepreneur and just as a human generally, have fun with whatever you're doing. 
for me and for like in in my all my relationships we are all playful we all love to play to enjoy ourselves to let go and also within the company it is so important for us to have play, a play element how much time do you take off to recharge and refocus let's say per week or per year I always take a full day off at the weekend, complete full day off. On a Sunday, it's normally a catching up day, like in the afternoon, catching up and planning my week. But I don't do a full day of work unless there is something really pressing on, which uh, that isn't often. So I'm really good at taking time off at the weekends. Um, And I'm also quite good at taking time off in the weekdays too. Like I will often just go and read for an hour during an afternoon. I will take the night times off to really relax and have some self-care. I know when I'm not really looking after myself, I'm not in my best work mode and mindset. And then also I play, I'm a very playful person and at home, me and my husband play all the time. Like little things like we'll put on, put music on really, really high and we'll just dance around the kitchen. And if anyone watches my Instagram stories, we do really silly things. Like we have competitions with who can do the best dancing with almond milk on their head and all of this really <laughs> silly stuff, which you should try if you haven't, because it's actually quite hard. And we've upgraded that to like flower, which is definitely harder, but we just do all of these ridiculously playful stuff and your energy levels and your vibration and everything is off the charts when you're doing stuff like that. And if your life isn't filled with all of these moments of just pure joy, I just think you're really missing out. So I try and have a really, really big balance. And it's something I encourage all my friends to do as well. If I notice they're not taking enough time for themselves, I really, really push them to do that. And whatever it is, whether it's curling up with a book and having a nice bath or whether it's going out with your friends for a hike, putting music on and just being crazy, whatever it is, play is so important. And you are never going to fall behind because you're taking some time off to play and relax and recharge. And I also take vacations. Um, I just took one, my honeymoon, very, very delayed honeymoon, but I took one, I think it was like two weeks ago. Um, and I completely switched off. I wasn't doing any work and I have a really supportive team who just handle all everything that comes in. And it was amazing for me. It just to be in that space. And I came back just feeling really refreshed. And I wasn't even buzzing with ideas actually, because I had not even been thinking that much. I was just so recharged and ready to get back into it. If you could spend a month anywhere in the world living, where would it be? I think just where I am right now, honestly. And I know that's... What a beautiful answer. Uh, yeah. I've done the traveling. I've lived everywhere I want to live. And I've I'm in such a grounded, happy place. I have the most amazing home and I'm, yeah, I'm just really happy. I would stay here. Mm, I love that answer. When you come to the end of your life and you're lying on your deathbed, what would you regret the most not doing if you didn't do it? Not spending enough time with my family. I Mm. don't have children yet, but I want children. um, And I, I want to make sure that I'm always spending time with the people that I love. And, you know, that's, that is friends as well. That is my family. It is the family I'm going to have. I would regret not spending enough time with them and present time as well. Time doesn't count if you're sitting on your sofa in their presence, just browsing Instagram. Actual time with them. Ask them questions. How are they feeling? What are they excited about? Just engaging in those conversations and having that genuine time spent together. I never want to look back and think, I wish I spent more time with my family or friends. Love it. All right, let's move into the rapid fire round. Answer these as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. Ooh, a game. We're playing. <laughs> what was it what was it like inside Buckingham Palace? Gold. 
What's it like being bitten by a swan? Oh, it hurts. What would your friends say is your superpower? Getting shit done. I'm an executor. What is one thing you're afraid of right now? Snakes. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? What are you truly passionate about? What's the one thing you want to get better at? Understanding human performance and uh, bio and neurohacking. What audiobook or regular book have you re-listened to the most? Uh, Letting Go by David Hawkins. What is the one thing you own and probably should throw out, but never will? Oh, hoodie I've had since I was 14. <laughs> if you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything that you like or have a passion for or anything else at all, what would it be? Optimizing human performance. Wow. Okay. Well, I just I just did a podcast at Bulletproof Labs in LA. <gasps> and Amazing. Yep. I will, I will make that connection there for you. That would be uh, incredible. I actually did it in the facility and I could talk for hours about that. So we definitely have to connect over that. Let's. I bet you found out so much about yourself. Oh my God. I, can't, I, I don't even want to start talking about it because it's going to be two more hours. I get that, yeah. <laughs> last, last question, and I'm going to switch things up a little bit. What one question do you want to ask me? What are you truly passionate about? That is such a great question. Really helping people balance the difference between work and play. We are working our brains out right now. And two out of three Americans are dying of heart disease and cancer. And they're leaving this world so dissatisfied and unfulfilled because all they focus on is work. And I want to help people realize that there's so much more to life than work. And if they just spent a little bit of time, even a little bit, putting more into the play part that we talked about earlier, everything would be better. Mm, I just got goosebumps. What an incredible it's mission. Can I ask you one more question? Yeah. If you could give everyone listening one tip for how to play more today, what would it be? To start and make it really, really simple and look at all of the areas of your life and make sure that every day that you are putting forth not just momentum and energy into business, but you're putting... I give myself a half a point for the different areas of my life. For example, a half a point for mindset, a half a point for meditation slash spirituality, a half a point for relationships with my wife, my children, and my friends, a half a point for the amount of fun that I have in my life. And at the end of the day, I have so many points that I want to make sure I get. And if I don't get those points, it makes me... And I do this because I'm an entrepreneur and I like, I, I like stats. And just having a measurement of play really, really helps me. And I think what where people get lost with play is they're looking for this. Okay, well, well, what do I do? Like, how do I how do I have more play? Just make it really, really simple. You know, just spend a little bit more time in areas that are outside of business. That just start there. Just don't focus only on business and look at those other areas and play for me, is a big bucket. It could be like, you know, this morning I woke up and I played Candyland with my three-year-old at the dining room table. And so I got my half a point. Does that make sense? I love that. I've never heard it explained so simply. I love that. 
just super simple, right? Yeah. And my husband is the biggest data nerd. And he, I'm going to tell him this. I guarantee I'm, I'm going to have to take a picture of his point system in a week's time. <laughs> Send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. <laughs>